Our New Testament scripture reading is taken from 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith, of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained, but refuse profane and old wives' fables, and exercise thyself rather unto godliness. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that it now is, and of that which is to come. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation. For therefore we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men, especially of those that believe. These things command and teach. Let no man despise thy youth, but be thou an example of the believers in word, in conversation, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Till I come, give attendance to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy, with the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Meditate upon these things, give thyself wholly to them, that thy profiting may appear to all. Take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. Continue in them, for in doing this thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. That's far the reading of God's word from the New Testament scriptures. Text for the sermon this Lord's Day is taken from Micah chapter 7. Verse 2, I'll be looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 7, but this verse summarizes the word of the Lord to us. Micah 7, verse 2, the good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. They hunt every man, his brother with a net. I think it is safe to say that most of us find it difficult at times to swim against the popular sentiment and opinion of the majority. It is, in fact, I believe, a wearing battle to Christians to persevere in bearing witness for the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ against the world and against even 
those corruptions that infiltrate and come into the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when God grants us the grace to boldly hold forth his banner of truth and righteousness before the multitudes, the battle is nevertheless, it seems, relentless. And those who oppose are so numerous that we are tempted to simply throw up our arms and defeat from sheer mental and spiritual exhaustion. The attraction of the multitudes, whether in the world or whether in the church of Christ at large, tugs at our heart. How could so many be wrong? But the Lord our God reminds us in His Word in Exodus 23.2, Thou shalt not follow a multitude to do evil. Micah the prophet here in chapter 7 declares the plight of the godly who are surrounded, so it seems, by ungodly speech, ungodly ideas, ungodly behavior wherever they turn. The Lord encourages Micah and those who are sincere followers of the Lord, follow not the example of the wicked, but rather look in faith and hope to the Lord Jesus. The main points for the sermon this Lord's Day are four in number. They are these. First of all, the godly are hard to be found. Secondly, the ungodly have formed a conspiracy. Thirdly, the most dear betray the godly. And fourthly, the Lord is the only hope of the godly. And so let us consider then the words of the Lord. First point, the godly are hard to be found. Consider with me chapter 7, verse 1 in the first part of verse 2. Woe is me, for I am as when they have gathered the summer fruits, as the great gleanings of the vintage. There is no cluster to eat. My soul desired the first ripe fruit. The good man is perished out of the earth, and there is none upright among men. Just by way of review... From just the previous verses in chapter 6, the Lord there, you'll recall, having searched the hearts of his people, gave to them a most startling evaluation of their faith and life. When the Lord says both their faith and life were filled with hypocrisy, merely going through the motions of their faith, the sincerity of their faith was missing. And as a result, the Lord despised their outward acts of worship, their outward acts of obedience because their heart was far from the Lord. They were playing a role. This is the message of the Lord to His people in the previous section. And Micah predicted that they would be given, by way of judgment, they would be given over to the loves and the pleasures to which they had become devoted these very loves and pleasures to which they had become devoted would actually become the means of their downfall. Their judgment, the rod that God would bring against them. 
because they loved the Assyrians. They loved the Babylonians. They loved the splendor, the glory of those nations. They even became enchanted with their gods. And it was those means that God used to bring judgment upon Israel. And so God uses the same thing in our own lives. Those things that replace love for the Lord in our own lives, God uses to bring His discipline upon us. God warns us, therefore, not to go the way of Israel in the time of Micah. Well, having given the Lord's reaction to Israel's hypocrisy in Micah chapter 6, verses 9 through 16, the Lord now gives voice to the godly remnant. It's as though now through the voice of Micah the prophet, the godly are speaking, that small remnant who are seeking to be faithful within Israel, now have a voice through the prophet. And this we see in chapter 7, verses 1 through 7. Here we see, dear ones, how the desires, the thoughts, and the words of God are reflected in the life of a faithful Christian. In fact, there are serious problems in the life of any professing Christian. When his desires, his thoughts, his words, his behavior reflect more of the world around him than of the Scripture and of the Lord Jesus Christ. When there is more of of the, the fashions and the fads, the thinking, the attitudes of the world in our hearts. When we are so easily influenced by the opinion of the multitudes that we don't have the courage to take a stand for what is right, then we know we have serious problems in our life. All of us struggle in that area. That's not the issue. But when we succumb to that temptation over and over and over again, we have a serious problem in our life that we need to deal with as Christians. For we know that the Scripture teaches in the life of every Christian The Holy Spirit is at work. It's not as though the the Bible says He might be at work in the life of every Christian. His operation is going on. And His whole operation is toward the end of conforming us in our desires, our thoughts, our speech, our behavior to the pattern of Christ. And so if we are not growing in in our... desire to avoid and not to conform to the world, then again, the world has quite a hold in our life. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, tells us, don't be conformed to the world. Don't be pressed and shaped into the mold that the world would press you into. But be conformed, rather, Christ. Renew your minds by the Word of God. So I would say, we might ask, where do we begin? When we begin to see the world having that kind of effect in our lives, well, let me ask you some questions. 
you can begin by asking yourself these kinds of questions. Are you earnestly praying that God would remove those sinful desires that you find in your life and that he would replace them with holy desires? Or have you become just comfortable with the desires that are there? Not really challenging, not really looking, searching, seeking the face of God with regard to those things. Are you avoiding and removing yourself as much as you possibly can from the very occasions to be tempted in the areas where you have fallen? Or do you continue to put yourself into those same situations voluntarily? You can tell someone's serious about overcoming sin in their life when they take those types of steps. Are you so serious about your sanctification and being conformed to the image of Christ that you even enter into a personal covenant with God? That you even fast? That your desires are so strong within you to overcome them, that you're willing to sacrifice to that degree to overcome these sins? That's what Job did in Job 31.1. He made a covenant with his eye not to look upon a virgin. He knew his problem. He was willing to admit his problem. And he made a covenant, a personal covenant with God. Yes, dear ones, there will continue while we have breath to be a raging battle within us between our sinful desires of the flesh and the Spirit of God. According to Galatians chapter 5, verse 17. Yes, we will struggle with sin. Yes, we will even fall into sin. Yet there will, dear ones, be always in the life of a Christian the operation of the Spirit of Christ. Ever stirring up faith and godly sorrow within our lives. Ever searching our hearts and our lives. And sending us back to Christ, who has already purchased by His death upon the cross, our sanctification. That conformity to which we're growing now is not something that we are in doubt concerning as Christians. That we may or may not reach that goal. As a Christian, that has been secured, our sanctification, our conformity to Christ, because Jesus already paid for it. It's a gift that has already been bestowed upon us as God's people. Just like Christ purchased for us our justification so that we now enjoy the righteousness of Christ imputed to us in his forgiveness. So he purchased our sanctification. Well, note the desperate cry of the faithful remnant here in Micah 7.1. Woe is me! is the cry of the faithful remnant. And here, Micah and the godly with him bewail the time of apostasy in which they live. You see, they're not comfortable with the backsliding that is going on during this time. They're not trying to comfortably fit in with the backslidden nation or the backslidden church. You see, it's not a reference here. This chapter... And what Micah is saying in this prophecy is not talking specifically about 
the, the world, the pagan nations and the influence they have upon Israel. It's talking about the nation and the church as a covenanted nation and church that have backslidden. And the faithful remnant within the church are crying out, Woe is me! Because look what's happened. Look what's happened to God's people. Their hearts, dear ones, as you hear this phrase, Woe is me! Their hearts are broken over the sin and error that they see, not only within their own lives, but within Israel as God's people. And I would simply add, if our hearts are not broken first over our own backsliding as we ask God to search our hearts, and if our hearts are not broken over the backsliding that we see within the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, if it does not humble us before the Lord and cause us to fall before His face and to seek His grace, And if we're not more concerned about the shame that we have brought to Christ, then we are about defending our own name. Then we cannot expect our testimony to affect the hearts and the minds of others. We must be lambs in our own cause and lions in the cause of Christ. So noted the faithful Rennick, James Rennick, who was falsely accused many, many times in a period of apostasy by the multitudes within Scotland. It must be lambs in our own cause, but lions in the cause of Christ. You see, Micah compares himself and the godly remnant of Israel to one seeking grapes. After the time of harvest, after the vineyards have been harvested, those who were faithful among God's people were as rare, he says, as a cluster of grapes upon a vine after the time of reaping. Micah 7.1 What Micah is saying about the time of apostasy in which he lived is that a faithful man, not a sinless man, a man that is sincere in his faith and life, a man that seeks to shun all hypocrisy in his life, a man that loves God, a man that loves the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ and loves his brethren with an unfeigned or unpretended love, Micah is saying, is a very rare person in this time of apostasy that was presently going on in Israel. In fact, Micah says he is so rare that he appears to have perished entirely from the face of the earth. That's what he says. The good man is perished out of the earth. Micah 7.2. That's how rare this man is. You know, there's a similar ring in the sentiments of Elijah during his time as to that which we find in Micah. You remember the words that Elisha uttered in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 10. When he said to the Lord, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken thy covenant, thrown down thine altars, and slain thy prophets with the sword, and I, even I, only am left, 
and they seek my life to take it away. Certainly the Lord assured Elijah in that particular circumstance that he wasn't alone, that there were reserved unto God 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. God does have those who will worship him, serve him faithfully. Was not this the case also, though, in others who lived in backsliding times, those who stood fearlessly and courageously as Noah stood against the entire world at his time? The sentiment of Micah and the godly remnant is echoed also in Elijah when he stood upon Mount Carmel before the 450 prophets of Baal. One man, it seemed again, was standing against the entire hierarchy of the nation, against all the hierarchy of the church at that time. Micaiah stood against 400 false prophets before King Ahab and King Jehoshaphat. Jeremiah seemed to stand alone in bearing witness against the apostasy in his time within Judah. The little flock of Christ was to find fierce opposition, not only during the time of Christ, but thereafter, from Rome and from Israel. They're called the little flock. And even the two witnesses that are found in Revelation chapter 11 says that in chapter 11, there, that the whole world, the whole world rejoices at the fallen state of the two witnesses. There again, you see that kind of disparity, the multitudes against those who are faithfully standing for the truth. It was the great defender of the Orthodox faith, Athanasius, who was told, the world is against you, Athanasius. You see, he had been excommunicated by the church. He had been exiled by the civil magistrate for defending the biblical faith. And he replied, and Athanasius is against the world. Calvin wrote from a perspective of being in a small faithful minority when he said this, it is an offense to a great many people that they see almost the whole world opposed to us. Shall we give up then? our biblical testimony because the majority disagree with us? Shall we conclude that we must be wrong because the biblical truths once defended by faithful Reformed churches no longer popular? God forbid. The saints of old were given God's grace to stand faithful. Micah was given God's grace to stand faithful. The remnant at that time was given God's grace to stand faithful to the revealed truth. That was given to them. In times of apostasy, if we would be faithful, we must expect, dear ones, to be in the minority and not allow that fact to jar us, to move us from our faithfulness to the Lord. Even as Joshua and Caleb gave a faithful report in spite of the unfaithful report of the ten and led basically the rest of the people into rebellion and apostasy against God. Oh, how the words of Matthew Henry on this text ring true. 
He says, when we read and hear of the wisdom and zeal, the strictness and conscientiousness, the devotion and charity of the professors of religion in former ages, and see the reverse of this in those of the present age, we cannot but sit down and wish with a sigh, oh, for primitive Christianity again. You see, the desire of the godly is ever expressed in the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in chapter 6, verse 16. Thus saith the Lord, Stand ye in the ways and see and ask for the old paths, where is the good way, and walk therein, and ye shall find rest for your souls. The question then, dear ones, for the faithful is not whether the majority walk with us, but rather do we walk with the Lord and with all his faithful witnesses of the past in promoting and defending the cause of Christ. The second main point, the ungodly have formed a conspiracy. The latter part of verse 2 through verse 4 says this, They all lie in wait for blood. They hunt every man his brother with a net, that they may do evil with both hands earnestly. The prince asketh, and the judge asketh for a reward, and the great man, he uttereth his mischievous desire. So they wrap it up. The best of them is as a briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge. The day of thy watchman and thy visitation cometh. Now shall be their perplexity. Israel had joined hands together that unfaithful part of the church at that time had joined hands together to oppress and defraud their weaker brethren among them. They commit their heinous deeds of theft, cheating, lying, covenant-breaking, and bringing suit against the poor and the helpless. Not simply with one hand, the text says, but they do it with two hands. Verse 3, chapter 7, verse 3. That is, they are very vigorous. They're very energetic. They're very busy about what they're doing and defrauding and bringing evil, that which is wicked, and not showing the love that they should to their brother, or their sister, and falling away from their truth. They're earnest in what they do. Sadly to say, the ungodly are often more earnest in loving that which is contrary to the revealed will of Christ than the professing Christian is in loving what is agreeable to the revealed will of Christ. The world, dear ones, and the devil have an agenda. Let us never forget. They have an agenda. And they are out to see that agenda realized. They are out to hinder in every way that they possibly can the growth of the kingdom of Christ. Whether it be in an individual Christian's life, whether it be in your family, or whether it be in the church, or in the nation, there's an agenda. Never forget that. And they are pursuing that agenda with all of their enthusiasm, with all the fervency that can possibly be mustered. They were doing so in breaking God's commandments. They were doing so 
fervently in committing idolatry and blasphemy and covenant breaking and Sabbath breaking, their immorality, their immodesty. We must be willing, dear ones, as those who profess the name of Christ, if we would see the kingdom of Christ grow, if we would see it advance, we must be willing to be as energetic and God-willing much more energetic than the wicked are in pursuing their agenda. We can't be neutral. We can't be comfortable. We can't maintain a status quo. We must be ever moving forward. Taking the sword of the Spirit. Defending the truth against the attacks of those who would bring the attacks upon the truth. Being willing to follow Christ no matter what it means. Whatever we have to leave behind to be willing to follow Christ. See, if there's not that kind of commitment in the life of the Christian, if there's not the same degree of commitment or, as I said, greater commitment on our parts than there is on the part of the wicked in pursuing their agenda, the world isn't going to listen to us. They want people who have convictions. They want to hear of people with the truth who are convinced that this is the truth of God. Who are committed by their life and not simply expressing it by their deeds. Or not only in their words, but in their deeds as well. It is no surprise, dear ones, to find the people in general, hating their brethren in this text in such demonstrable ways when the text reveals that the leaders themselves set the example by perverting justice due to the poor and by taking the bribes of the wicked and the wealthy in chapter 7, verse 3. Micah demonstrates that the wicked conspire together and satisfy their, their, their own goals when it says, so they wrap it up. That is, so they weave their plan together. They conspire together as to how to thwart the purposes of God. Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, speaks of this conspiracy on the part of the wicked to undo the going forth of Christ's kingdom, to break off the bands. And so they weave this plan together to further their own selfish designs. You see, they are busy. They are busy and energetic in wickedness and error. Are we as busy in righteousness and truth? In Ezekiel chapter 22, <clears throat> listen to the conspiracy here. Ezekiel 22, verses 25 through 30. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof. Like a roaring lion, ravening the prey, they have devoured souls. They have taken the treasure and precious things. They have made her many widows in the midst thereof. Her priests have violated my law and have profaned mine holy things. They have put no difference between the holy and profane. Neither have they shown difference between the unclean and the clean, and have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. 
and I am, pro- am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst thereof are like wolves ravening the prey to shed blood and to destroy souls to get dishonest gain. And her prophets have daubed them with untempered mortar, seeing vanity and divining lies unto them, saying, Thus saith the Lord God, when the Lord hath not spoken. The people of the land have used oppression and exercised robbery and have vexed the poor and needy. Yea, they have oppressed the stranger wrongfully. And I sought for a man among them that should make up the hedge and stand in the gap before me for the land, that I should not destroy it, but I found none. Period of apostasy. How has the apostasy come about by way of conspiracy on the part of the wicked to overthrow the kingdom of the Lord? All goals to further a man-centered agenda is a conspiracy to do evil. And it all began with Satan when he conspired to be like God in the Garden of Eden and sought to give and make that same temptation available to Eve. You see, dear ones, it's not only civil leaders and ecclesiastical leaders that may be guilty of taking bribes. But we as individual Christians can be guilty of taking bribes. Professing Christians who, out of fear of men, compromise the truth. Or who, for the applause of men, are not willing to stand for the truth. Are taking a bribe just as much as they've received money. Because they're doing it for their own gain. For something that they're going to get out of it. And yes, even pastors and elders, when they show respect to those who in the congregation have money, or those who have conspicuous gifts but disregard those who don't, have accepted a bribe as well. We are to minister to the least of these, our brethren. To the, to the seemingly most ungifted. To those who may seem the weakest. Who may struggle the most. That's our calling, is to seek to help those and not simply put our attention upon those who will seem to benefit mostly the kingdom of Christ. More conspicuously do so. Dear ones, the enemy of your soul, that is Satan, has conspired with the world to overthrow your faith in Jesus Christ. Not only by means of persecution, not only by means of affliction, but also, listen closely, also by means of comfort and security in this world. To overthrow your faith. By means of success and prestige by means of wealth and riches, by means of love of pleasure, love of music, love of television, love of self, the enemy conspires to overthrow your faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, the Apostle Paul makes it ever so clear 
that this love of self leads to every other sin by which we fall away from Christ. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. That's the sin. That's the chief sin that leads to all the other sins that are here mentioned in the next two verses. But that's the chief one. Listen to what follows. After lovers of their own selves, covetous, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, without natural affection, truce breakers, false accusers, incontinent, fierce, despisers of those that are good, traitors, heady, high-minded, lovers of pleasure more than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying the power thereof. From such turn away. We not only have an enemy of, of our soul in Satan, but we also have an enemy within our soul, the flesh. That sin that yet remains within us that drives us to follow the multitude to do evil. To conform to the world's standards. To fit in with what the world says is acceptable and cool. To walk the broad way rather than the narrow way. The broad way, dear ones, leads to destruction. That's the way the multitudes walk. But it's the narrow way which leads to life. If we are not sober-minded and wise to the devil's schemes, we will walk right into the trap, as did Peter, you'll recall, who because of his flesh, the enemy within, and because of the enemy without, Satan, who desired to tempt him, he very proudly said, Lord, I will never, ever fall away from you. I'll never desert you. I'll never betray you. Everybody else may flee from you, but not me. And the pride in his own heart welled up. And it was that very temptation that came upon Peter and led to his fall. Thank God Christ came and restored him. But nevertheless, the enemy from within, the enemy from without, set the trap and Peter fell into it. And so the enemy does with us. Micah declares, dear ones, in this section, that a time of reckoning is coming to Israel of old. At that time, it was coming. When both the watchmen, that is the civil and the ecclesiastical leaders, as well as the common people, would endure the day of God's righteous visitation of judgment for their backsliding. You see, that's exactly what Peter says. 1 Peter 4.17, where does judgment begin? Does it begin with the world? No, it begins with the household of God. 1 Peter 4.17 For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? May God help us to keep our hearts tuned to these very truths that the world that the enemies of, of the truth have conspired together. Let us not enter into their conspiracy to overthrow the truth. The third main point. 
Those most dear betray the godly. Consider with me Micah chapter 7, verses 5 and 6. Trust ye not in a friend, put ye not confidence in a guide. Keep the doors of thy mouth from her that lieth in thy bosom. For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Micah now declares what must be, dear ones, among the most painful experiences that a child of God can possibly go through. That is to be betrayed by a relative or a friend so near and dear to them. One whom you thought embraced the same truths, professed the same faith, expressed the same desires, but who in times of persecution or times of apostasy turns his or her back on the truth once professed and becomes an opponent rather than a proponent of the truth once embraced. Can there be a deeper wound incurred than to have a trusted friend or counselor, as the text says, a wife or a husband, a child or a parent, fall away from the truth, whether in faith or life. Here's where the Lord, I believe, tests our love and faith to the maximum degree. For most of us would rather know the pain of losing a loved one in death than to lose a loved one through betrayal. The unfaithful betrayal of a spouse, dear ones, is far more difficult for us than the death of a spouse. But dear ones, even such betrayal does not happen without a divine purpose. We're never victims. Even in those circumstances, in those circumstances, we still must ask the question, in whom is our faith? Who is our first love? Is our life, our joy, our peace, and contentment all wrapped up in that person who has betrayed us and has betrayed the truth? If that is the case, I can assure you that you will never, ever recover from the wound and from that pain, if that's where your trust is. You will never know the peace of God that passeth all understanding. You see, the Lord brings such painful experiences into our lives to drive us to Him. To find in Him our life. To learn afresh that without Him we can do nothing. But with Him we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And I'd ask you, is there anything in your life that you're not willing to give up for the sake of Christ? Even that most dear, beloved one. God certainly does not take everything from us when we come to Christ in faith. But dear ones, we must be willing to give up everything in this life in order to follow Christ. Was it not the rich young ruler's unwillingness to give up all for Christ that revealed his lack of faith? And was it, on the other hand, not the widow's willingness to give even her last two mites that revealed the presence of her faith? 
What are you willing to sacrifice for Christ? That's a demonstration of your faith in Jesus Christ. Are you willing to follow him anywhere? Are you willing to do whatever he calls you to do in his word? Whatever he brings by way of his providence in your life. Are you willing to trust him? Beloved, the Lord our God was willing to give up his son for you. How can we withhold our willingness to give up our loved ones to him? Are you yet in pain due to some betrayal in your own life? The Lord is your sympathetic high priest who was betrayed by one of his own disciples. He understands. He knows. Have you been forsaken by a loved one? Christ was forsaken by his Father as he hung upon the cross. As to his human nature, when he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But he did so for your good, for your well-being, for your salvation. He was willing to be forsaken because it's our salvation. He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken by the Lord. Come to Christ, dear ones, and cast all your cares upon him. Whatever anxieties that you might have about these issues, cast them upon the Lord, for he cares for you. And he will be a friend that sticks closer to you than a brother. Because it's our salvation. He was forsaken that we might never be forsaken by the Lord. Come to Christ, dear ones, and cast all your cares upon him. Whatever anxieties that you might have about these issues, cast them upon the Lord, for he cares for you. And he will be a friend that sticks closer to you than a brother. The last main point is this. The Lord is the only hope of the godly. Chapter 7, verse 7. At the end of this section where God talks about how there are times of apostasy when even the faithful are betrayed by their most dear loved ones, the Lord doesn't leave us in that pain. Notice where he turns our attention. Verse 7, chapter 7. Therefore... I will look unto the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Micah does not leave the faithful remnant with a sense of loss, but confidently turns their attention to the Lord their God, who will more than supply us with that which is truly gain. In Luke chapter 18, the disciples came to the Lord Jesus. They said, Lord, what shall we have? We've given up everything to follow you. What will we have as a reward for what we have given up? Consider what the Lord says. Chapter 18 of Luke, beginning with verse 28. And Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, 
Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or parents or brethren or wife or children for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time and in the world to come life everlasting. He says, if you have given up these relationships, I'll supply you with even more dear relationships within the body of Christ. If you've given up homes, I will supply you with homes beyond what you realize because of the communion of the saints. All kinds of homes will be opened up to us. If we give up wealth, we will receive riches in this life untold, the riches and the wealth of God's grace and know the blessing of the Lord in our lives. And the blessing above all blessings, you receive eternal life, life everlasting. Even if God didn't supply us with other blessings in this life to enjoy for what we give up, the blessedness of eternal life, everlasting life with the Lord Jesus, we will look back on that time when we are with the Lord. We'll look back on what we suffered in this life. You know, there won't be one person who regrets having given up even their lives for the Lord. They'll never say it wasn't worth it to give up it, whatever it required to follow Christ. There won't be any such uttering on the part of God's people. Only the Lord Jesus cannot be taken from you. And I close with this final thought. In order to present our lives as living sacrifices to Christ, even to the point of forsaking all to follow Christ, we must see ourselves more and more in this life as strangers, as aliens, and as pilgrims. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 11, the Apostle Peter says, Whereas, I'm sorry, I was in Second Peter, First Peter chapter 2. Try that again. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. We need to have more of the mentality, this world is not my home. I'm just passing through. We need to have that mentality, that idea that heaven is our home. That our citizenship is in heaven. That we're in a foreign land. And the world doesn't love us. It doesn't like us. We don't play by the same rules. We don't serve the same God. Our love is different. And if this is our conviction, dear ones, that our true home is in heaven, we follow in the footsteps of the faithful like Abraham, who in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13 So God led him to 
a ge geographical piece of property, real estate, here upon the world, in this life. Nevertheless, the Lord says, that wasn't what he was really looking for. He was really looking for his true home, heaven. Is that your true home? You'll never be able to withstand the multitude. You'll be carried along with the multitude to do evil as long as this world is your home. As long as this world to you is not that which uh, is foreign, you'll never be able to withstand those temptations. May God help us to find our peace, our joy, our contentment in Christ and in the heaven which he has prepared for us. Please stand with me in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do acknowledge this day that we are prone to follow the multitude. We acknowledge, O oh Lord, that the pressures that are exerted against us, whether the fear of men or whether to desire the applause of men, whether it's to enjoy comfort and excess success in this life, O oh Lord, we acknowledge that these are temptations in our life that we find very difficult to withstand at times. We pray, Father, that Thou would help us to have the, the uh, message upon our lips that was upon the lips of Micah. Woe is me. Help us, Father, to see that when the world is going in the direction it is, when the church is falling away, from the truths which it once embraced, that, Lord, we cannot become comfortable in this situation. Thou dost call us, O Lord, to be faithful to Thee, to testify against these sins and errors. Thou dost call us, O Lord, to be willing to give up all, to follow Thee. We pray, our God, that Thou would cause these truths to be burned into our hearts and our lives, to become conviction to such a degree that, Lord, the temptations that are brought against us to follow the multitude would wane and eventually no longer be a temptation to us for our love that we have for Christ. We pray, Father, that Thou would Strengthen, encourage us, and convict us, Lord. And draw us unto Christ to find in Him our all in all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. 
swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.